0: Romans chapter eleven, and uh, it, this is the uh, this is the doxology of uh, Romans nine. Actually, the entire gamut of Romans, all the way through to chapter eleven and verse thirty-three, because this is this is Paul's explosion of praise under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, uh, considering the greatness of God and His glory and His salvation. And this is really, I don't know if this was John Calvin's life verse or anything, but it might have been. Here's how it goes. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are inscrutable. You can't unscrew them. <laughs> that is, they're, they're, they're past finding out. And then he's, he goes, who has given, I'm sorry, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given him a gift that he would have to repay him? Those are all rhetorical questions, and I think we know the answer. But then this great conclusion, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So let me ask you, this morning, why are you here? No, seriously, why are you here? Why are you here? Is he, are you here for the preaching? Are you here for, because of the preacher? Are you here because of the music and the atmosphere and the friendship and the fervency? All things noble and good and all that. But did you know that we have a very thorough theological statement of faith? Have you ever read it? Does it make any difference? Like the guy I sat down who visited our church a few times a few months ago, I sat down with him and his wife and he said, you know, mostly the churches around here all pretty much believe the same thing. Really? Is that true? Does it really make any difference what we believe? Uh, time was, it was a matter of life and death, what you believed. And it's still that way in the persecuted countries to this day. It certainly was that way in the days of the Reformation. As we continue in the series where we go- look back 500 years ago when the Reformation began and we look at some of these amazing personalities and some of the great doctrines that came out of it, that's why it's subtitled The Story of the Reformation and the Scripture that Set the Church Free. In 1735, that's, you know, just 17, 18 years after Martin Luther had nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church, those 95 arguments against the sale of indulgences we talked about last week, a young theologian arrived in Geneva, Switzerland. He was escaping from the persecution, which now is ongoing because the Catholic Church was persecuting the Protestants, and so they were finding Places of Refuge in Geneva was one of them. The young theologian only planned to stay there for a couple of days until things sort of settled down then he'd move out. But he was confronted by the pastor of the city whose name was Farrell. Farrell took the young theologian and said, Look, I know that you desire to just write books and study and things like that, but we need you. We need you to stay here in this city and help preach the doctrines of grace, the gospel of this city, and the young theologian began to just give all of these excuses why he really didn't feel like he should, to which Pharaoh, and the story has it, he jumped out of his seat, dishes went flying, pointed his bony finger right into the face of young John Calvin and said, you are following your own wishes. And I declare in the name of God Almighty that if you do not assist us in the work of the Lord, the Lord will punish you for seeking your own interest. How would you like that for a response? And being tender-hearted, Calvin saw that as God's will for him to stay and he did and thus began the story of the Reformation in Switzerland and namely in Geneva. Now just as a a side note, as with last week, a little disclaimer when it comes to history, okay? Because, his, you, know, to, to, you know, to the victor come the spoils, and oftentimes to the victor comes the history, down through the, the history. I'm sure that heaven will have plenty of surprises for all of us when we look back at some of our heroes of the faith, do you think? Our own evangelical history seems to say there's nothing so horrific that a couple of hundred years won't forgive, Now, OJ is hoping a couple of decades will do the trick. We tend to treat our heroes like the ungodly dead guy at the funeral. It's like all of his vices just sort of go away, you know, as we eulogize them. The characters of the Reformation were men and women who were flawed, and some of them were seriously flawed, and not just, when I say that, I mean, some of the, you've got to keep in mind that this is a time they're just, they're, they're just beginning to extract themselves from a convoluted system that sort of had the gospel in it, but it had just been stuffed with all kinds of excesses. And that's why they were just getting it, they were figuring it out on their own. And we, sent, we tend to look back 500 years and be very critical. But no matter what you thought of these guys, they were stallions for the faith. They were men who were courageous with conviction, just rarely seen even in our own day. Men like Zwingli, who who was a follower of Luther and a friend of Luther, but actually stood Luther to the face at a meeting where they argued over the lord's supper because luther while he was extracting himself unintentionally from the roman system he had not he he kept some of its trinkets he still believed in a sacrament in a sacramental system as it pertained to the lord's table he saw christ as the presence of christ in around and under these elements and Zwingli, because the bible now because of luther and those morning stars that preceded him now was into the hands of the people into the language of the people He's studying the Bible, and Zwingli, Luther's own friend, comes to the conclusion, much as we have, we have embraced, that it's symbolic, it's holy, it's powerful, it's, 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 a, it's an amazingly sacred time in the church, but the presence of Christ is not in those elements. that, that were people of faith. They went back and forth and forth, back and forth. That's, we're not going to that picture just yet, but back and forth they went until they split and then there was men like Knox, who you're looking at here in this, the statue. John Knox was absolutely fearless. It was John Knox who was the evangelist to Scott. He was, he was the one who was the forerunner of the Scottish Reformation, admirer of Luther and Calvin. But John Knox was the man who, who literally stood Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, who persecuted Christians to the face until she had a quivering lip and broke down and wept before him. He said, give me Scotland or I die. And it's reported that Mary, Bloody Mary, made the comment, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. And then there was Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, these two rock stars of the faith, were burned at the stake by Bloody Mary. And really, the clarion call of the Reformation comes out of this scene. It's one of my favorite of all of time. Here, the flames are going up, and Ridley is becoming apparently paralyzed with fear, to which Latimer says, Be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley, and play the man! For we'll light a candle of such that will never be distinguished in England. Truly, these individuals, like those I've mentioned and many others we don't have time to mention, were of the stuff of Hebrews 11, where they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Do you? No, really, do you? Because if you do, then, you, then your desire is to glorify God in everything. And that just uses a coined phrase. John Calvin was a man possessed with sola de gloria. to Everything to God be the glory. And while he didn't die for his faith, he could have... And while he too desired a better, a heavenly country as those who did die for their faith, he would set out to create a church and society in Geneva that would become the envy of the world. The university that he founded, the University of Geneva, would become the template for all universities that would come out of it to this present day. Our very political system here in the United States of America owes a debt of gratitude to this man, John Calvin. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of this little trivia, but about 250 years later, that's almost 250 years later, our own Thomas Jefferson actually tried to purchase the University of Geneva and bring it to America. That's how impressed he was with the system. Kelvin was eight years old when Martin Luther nailed those 95 arguments against the sale of indulgences to the church at Wittenberg. 16 years later, at the age of 24, and I have a theory about men in the age of 24, but I won't go there. I was converted at 24. At 24, he was converted. At 26, he wrote his magnum opus, The Institutes, which basically was a theology of the Reformation. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that Luther was like, Luther was like a volcano spewing theological thoughts in all kinds of directions. But Calvin gave theology a body. He, He gave it a body. He gave us something to grab a hold of, to believe. In fact, one writer called him the architect of the Reformation. Philip Melanchthon, a contemporary and a friend, a Lutheran theologian, simply called John Calvin the theologian. Now, the days preceding the Reformation have often been called the Dark Ages. Ever heard that? These are the Dark Ages, all right? And now, of course, modern historians try to, um, they argue against that because they really weren't Dark Ages, because the Dark Ages conjures up, you know, just a bunch of, uh, you know, a till of the Huns and, and uh, this and that. But the truth is, there, the, the sciences, mathematics, there was a lot of development going on in those days preceding the Reformation. But they were Dark Ages. That is an appropriate term. And men like Luther and Calvin knew that they were spiritually dark ages. The church had, the church, the Roman church had put a stranglehold on people and had kept them from the truth. Now the truth was put into the light and people were coming to Christ. Much because of the greatness of men like Calvin who saw the Reformation as a time of revival where, where light could come out of darkness. Calvin was a Bible expositor extraordinary. You can still read his expositions. He wrote, on most, he wrote commentaries on most of the books of the Bible. He preached five times a week. He preached 200 sermons in the book of Deuteronomy alone. That's all you got to say. And when he was so exact, so particular, so nuanced when it came to preaching the word of God verse by verse, that when Geneva, who, where he stayed and became you know the pastor of Geneva, they kicked him out two years later. Him and Farrell, another got kicked out. They lost their pulpits. They went to Strasbourg, France, where he married, started a family, loved it there, didn't want to come back, could have stayed there. But Geneva begged him to come back. Can you believe how humbling that must have been for Geneva? And and for John Calvin to go back under all of that duress, he comes back and he preaches his very first sermon in the very church that kicked him out of Geneva and he picked up in the very next verse where he'd left off two years earlier. That's how exact this man was when it came to Bible exposition. And his passion was everything to the glory of God. Everything to the glory of God. He saw that the glory of God should be emanating from your life and from your life, from your work, from your liberties, from your entertainment, all the way up until death itself. That's why I ask you, do you really glorify God? He he took to heart Paul's words to the Corinthians, and whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? All to the glory of God, right? In fact, Calvin took the the famous watchmakers of Geneva, he, he adjured them, he, he confronted them, and he said, you must be doing these watches for the glory of God because when you stand in the judgment, God will display all of your watches to see if they were done to the glory of God. Imagine that. It was because of Calvin that we got all of the solas of the faith Pastor Brad will be unpacking during the month of August, but sola script, those Latin phrases, sola scriptura, the Bible alone, sola gratia, fe, or grace alone, sola fide, uh, faith alone, sola Christos, Christ alone, and the one that Calvin was enamored with, sola de gloria, to God alone be the glory. Calvin was known for his emphasis on the sovereignty of God, the overarching controlling element of God Himself. I mean, if God isn't in control, who's in control? And he, he shared this, he was preached this, he taught this, he wrote on these things. And it doesn't matter if you're in the other theological camp, if you're an Arminian, shame on you, but oh well, if you are, you still owe a debt of gratitude to John Calvin. His his focus on election and predestination, whom God chooses, he saves, was a great comfort to the church. And if you just look at the text itself, where this, this doxology, because that's what it is. It says, oh, the depth. See that? Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are inscrutable. They're past finding out. But he says, oh, the depth. When we, this, this is how Calvin, this is what his commentary says on this passage. Whenever we enter on a discourse respecting the eternal counsels of God, now watch this, let a bridle, Be always set on our thoughts and tongue. So that after having spoken soberly and within the limits of God's word, our reasoning may at the end may end rather in admiration. Unquote. You see, to Calvin, if theology didn't lead itself to doxology, it had not done its proper work and it won't do its proper work in you. If you're studying all the nuances, if you're analyzing and studying the nuts and bolts of scripture, which, which a theologian, which a pastor, which a Bible expositor does, and it doesn't turn to praise to God, the work has not been done in your life or in mine. And this is the very thing that, that catapulted John Piper into the ministry. It was Piper that was studying Romans chapter nine, writing a book on it, getting into the nuts and bolts of Romans chapter nine, and in the midst of all of it, he, he, he shares in his own personal testimony as if God himself spoke to him and said to John Piper, I will be adored and not just analyzed. Depth, oh the depth. Depth speaks of things unseen. Like a house in Iowa which footings have to be put beneath, below the frost line, so that what, the superstructure will stay firm, right? The idea is depth says these are things I don't see, I don't comprehend, I don't understand, but I trust you anyway, God. That's what that says. It's fascinating to me that the Bible speaks of the wisdom and the knowledge and the judgments of God and his love, I might add. By placing their origin, listen to what I'm saying, by placing their origin in the extreme places that we cannot see with terms like depth and highest heavens, Out of our sight so that we're left to have to simply trust, believe God. Look at how the psalmist put it. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. So there you have two extremes. You have depth out of sight, highest heaven out of sight. What that says is that you and I must trust what the word of God says. We don't get to understand everything it says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, Moses wrote, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, amen? And so we trust him, even though we don't completely understand. I I believe so that I might understand, as one writer put it. I don't understand so that I can believe. Calvin understood this. There was a theology that would come after Calvin, Jacob Arminius, who opposed Calvin. And, and, and what Arminian, Arminianism does is it pulls God down and pulls the depths up so that we can comprehend it and that's a different God than the one I worship. The Bible says I must trust God, believe what he's told me and trust him for what I don't understand. Is that okay with you? Are you okay with that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Calvin taught. There are churches and theologies today that take away the depths, they take away the heights, attempting to bring God down so that I can just create my own little God, understand him completely. What kind of God is that? Listen, when you die and go to heaven, that's those of you who are actually gonna die and go to heaven, you're not gonna become omniscient. You don't become God when you go to heaven. You'll have all eternity to learn. How's that? You'll be learning, I'll be learning for all eternity. And those depths will become a little clearer, as will the heights. And this is the reason why he says in verses 34 and 35, who who knows the mind of the Lord? These are rhetorical questions. Who sat down and done a counseling session with him? And to whom, who has done anything to God that God has to repay him? What's the answer to these questions? No one, no one, no one, no one knows the mind of the Lord but the true triune God. No one counsels the one who is the, who, is the, who is the epitome of wisdom itself. No one makes God his debtor since we owe God. God doesn't owe us. By the way, you can amen that. And so, he ends with this doxology by saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So just, let's, just, let's just break that down. All right? From him. When the Bible tells us everything glorious comes from God, That is, God is the source of all things glorious. Do you believe that? Every good thing and every perfect thing comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation, not even a shadow of turning. That's God. That's our immutable God, right? Who is the source of all things glorious. And so it's from him and it's through him. So not only does all things, do all things glorious come from God, but God is the means by which all things glorious come. So they come through him. You don't conjure anything up on yourself. You have no glory in yourself. Are you okay with that? Everything's given to you. Everything's given to me by God coming from him, coming through him as not only the source, but the means of all things glorious. And finally, to him. So if it comes from him, works its way through him, it must find its way back to him, right? Because to him be all glory. To him, God is the aim to which all glory belongs. He is your aim. He is my aim. And so this is... This was the thought behind Piper again. In 1977, he was teaching at Bethel College in Minneapolis, an advanced Greek course with 12 students. A couple of them became notable men in pulpits and commentaries in the years that would follow. And he was working on this verse, this 36th verse. You know, that all things come from him. They come through him. They go to him. And he was working it out, and all, the new, all the Greek nuances and this and that. And he was turned to the whiteboard, or the chalkboard, or whatever. As he turned around, the class started singing. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him, above all heavenly hosts. Old- Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He said, it, he said the theology turned into a doxology, which is exactly what it must do in my life and in your life. Is it any wonder that Paul concludes this with, to him be glory forever, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. We will lay to rest Tony Lawrence this coming week. 71 years old, came to know Jesus, I think, what, Four or five years ago, five years ago, and uh, been battling a, partic- a virulent form of cancer in the last couple of years throat cancer. Uh, just a horrible thing. Tony Lawrence loved to cook, and he was a cook. I mean, he was like a delicatessen. But for two years, all he could do was puree his food. He could never eat it. But he made food for everybody. My wife and I were recipients to some delicious meals he would bring over. And some of the other pastors were as well, people in our church. He was in tremendous pain, and yet always, never a complaint, always gave Glory to God unto his last breath. And today, he's fixing eggs and bacon for Jesus up there somewhere. And joining him, I might add. But it doesn't matter whether it's good in your life or bad. It doesn't matter if we're talking about being here in church or being at that mundane job you're working at. And you don't look forward to going to tomorrow. It doesn't matter if it's your best friend or your neighbor you can't stand looking at because of all the stuff they throw in your yard. You give glory to God. And when you do that, you'll make theology a doxology. And one more thing nobody gives glory to God unless they give glory to his son. Not possible. You cannot glorify God unless you glorify his son. Jesus said in John 5, you cannot, he who honors the father has to honor the son. You can't honor the father unless you honor the son. The way you honor the son is by believing in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You say, well, you're just talking about Calvin. Didn't he talk about limited atonement and all this? What difference does that make? If the spirit of God has touched your heart, you respond to him and believe and you'll be saved that's what the bible teaches that's what Calvin would want you to know that's what i give to you today a theology that should produce a doxology god thank you for this time we could spend in your word looking back we pray you've been honored in all of this Lord, as we've looked at your word and we've looked back and see these ginormous shoulders that we stand upon of great men of the faith, we're humbled by their courage, we're inspired by their truth. And I pray some of us would be saved by its doctrine that Christ alone saves. If you're here this morning as one who has never repented of his or her sin, you've never seen yourself as lost. But in your heart right now, there's a fire burning. There's something happening. You know, I want this. I desire this. That's God. He is stirring you. He's drawing you to himself. Respond. That's all you get to do. You just respond. Tell him you're sorry. Believe that Jesus died for you personally and rose again. If you'll believe that, Scripture says, you'll be saved. Believer in Jesus, that's those of you who really have a relationship with him. Are you giving glory to God in all things? Not just the good things, not just the happy things, but the sad things, the hurtful things, the insulting things, the grinding things, that neighbor, that workmate. That guy who cut you off on the road, that wife, that husband that doesn't know Jesus and it's a struggle, can you give glory to God? If you will, you'll honor him by making your theology a doxology. And to the glory of Jesus we pray, amen. Let's stand.